You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. shall not see, and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. For six months, this country was led by the people who were doing their best to prove, probably for the first time in the history of mankind, that socialism and democracy can exist side by side. The destination of these people is at the moment In these areas, the character of the country will have changed beyond recognition. They are not remote corners of these islands. They are its very heart. And by their change, the character of England itself will be changed. No martyr's cause has ever been stilled by an assassin's bullet. No wrongs have ever been righted by riots and, and civil disorders. I think that the great important thing now in France that people have learned that they can change something if they go in the street or in the factory. An incomes policy is as irrelevant as the blush on a dead man's cheek. Quite frankly, I think the Holy Father could have spared a paragraph in this long encyclical for the, uh, to sustain the people who, um, shall we say, are going to be left holding the baby. These were the voices of 1968, a year that ended with a space triumph that few would have predicted at the start, an American manned journey round the moon. Man was laying claim to his nearest space partner. We've got it, uh, we've got it, Apollo uh, 8 now in... In lunar orbit, uh, there's a cheer in the, this room. Uh, this is Apollo Control Houston, uh, switching now to the voice of Jim Lovell. By 60.5, we hear your voice. The Apollo 8 astronauts had successfully gone into lunar orbit. No human eyes had ever been closer to the moon's surface. Move 
essentially gray. No color. Looks like plaster of Paris. Or uh, sort of a grayish beach sand. Back on Earth, in Vietnam, it seemed the war would never end. Was North Vietnam serious in saying that peace talks would follow a bombing halt? While Washington wondered, the Viet Cong struck at Saigon, Hue, and almost every other city. It was the Lunar New Year, the Tet, the decisive offensive of the war. This is the main South Vietnamese language radio station of Saigon. And right now some of the Viet Cong are inside occupying the station. We understand they're not broadcasting on the air, but they do have control of the station. South Vietnamese troops outside, waiting for some tear gas to arrive, which they're going to use. There's a Viet Cong machine gun in there, about 100 yards away. They're trying to get it with gunships. And in case the men should try to flee into the street. The Viet Cong in the heart of Saigon. In the countryside, the pacification program was in ruins. The statements of the American military commander, General Westmoreland, rang hollow. Uh, the, the enemy very deceitfully has taken advantage of the Tet Truce in order to uh, create max, maximum consternation uh, within uh, South Vietnam, uh, particularly in the populated areas. In his view, the Viet Cong offensive was a go-for-broke affair. Viet Cong casualties must have been high, but they turned American protest against the war from left-wing eccentricity into liberal orthodoxy. Senator Robert Kennedy was ironical. A total military victory is not within sight and is not around the corner. And in fact, it is probably beyond our grasp. Ironic it is that we here in the United States and our public officials should claim a victory because the people to whom we have given 16,000 lives, billions of dollars, and almost a decade to defend did not rise up in arms against us. More disillusioning and painful is the fact the population did not rise to defend their freedom. And as he began his ridiculed campaign for the presidential nomination in the snows of New Hampshire, Senator Eugene McCarthy led the attack. The first is we have to be willing to negotiate a coalition government in South Vietnam. If we're not willing to agree to a coalition government, which is what the, the fighting is about, then there's no point in talking about negotiation. And that must include the National Liberation Front and must include also, of course, the communist element in the National Liberation Front. Opposition to the war mounted, and Senator McCarthy nearly won. In March, President Johnson replaced General Westmoreland and announced a partial bombing halt of North Vietnam. Tonight I have ordered our aircraft and our naval vessels to make no attacks on North Vietnam. The area in which we are stopping our attacks includes almost 90% of North Vietnam's population and most of its territory. Within six weeks, American and North Vietnamese delegations arrived in Paris. Six months after his first speech, President Johnson halted the bombing altogether, and the stage was set for full talks under the new president. Senator McCarthy's success had brought a new candidate into the race, Robert Kennedy. I run to seek new policies, policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities, policies to close the gaps that now exist between black and white, between rich and poor, between young and old, in this country, 
and around the rest of the world. Lyndon Johnson was a proud man, and his pride had been wounded by New Hampshire. Kennedy's intervention ensured that he would have to fight and fight hard for renomination. On March the 31st, he announced more than the partial bombing halt. With American sons in the field far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. For Czechoslovakia, the year began in hope in January. The conservative President Novotny was sacked as party secretary. Under Alexander Dubček, the Czechoslovak Communist Party led the country towards reform. The action program in April abolished censorship. A whole nation blossomed into freedom. The voice of the middle-aged generation ready to put its ideals into practice. We are now coming a bit nearer to our goals or aims which uh, we have set up. As a matter of fact, the younger generation doesn't know anymore, you see, how to make the secret ballot. Mm. And moreover, there are still some people who have fear to, to apply quite freely uh, their own opinions. And of course, that, that must be overcome. That means that we have also to elaborate those uh, ways in which the personal opinions of the individuals may be fully expressed. But the danger signals were there. Soviet troops taking part in Warsaw Pact maneuvers in June took weeks to leave. The Czechoslovak leaders confronted the Russians and their Warsaw Pact allies at Cherna and Bratislava. Could Dubček stand up to them? He could but his determination may have tipped the balance in Moscow towards intervention. Maďarské lidové republiky a Bulharské lidové republiky, státní hranice Československé socialistické republiky. The unthinkable had happened. In the early hours of the 21st of August, Czechoslovak radio announced the invasion by Warsaw Pact troops. Moscow claimed that intervention had been at the request of Czechoslovak leaders to save socialism. The Czechoslovaks didn't see it that way. Radio Free Prague. No one can doubt that this act of occupation is bound to have dire consequences for the entire communist movement in the world. We proclaim that our people and our communist party will never accept this occupation. We reject it and we will do everything to restore conditions for normal life in our country. And at the United Nations, the foreign minister, Dr. Hayek. 
We wish only that the government of the five socialist countries facing the unity of our people in face of their occupation units and seeing the dangerous consequences of the occupation may grasp as soon as possible how enormous and tragic a mistake they made and make its decisive and speedy correction. Resistance to the invaders was spontaneous and total. The solidarity of the Czechoslovaks, their knowledge of what they'd won and what they might lose, produced a degree of national unity never known before. It was a nation of heroes whom their leaders could only follow. This unnamed, unknown 22-year-old student spoke for them all. At 3 a.m. 21st August 1968, I woke up to a completely different world from that one I went to sleep in. At the very moment I am recording this, the Russian tanks prepared for any action are standing in a big park just under my windows. You might think that the Czech people behaved like cowards when they did not fight. But you just can't go against the tanks with empty hands. The only way how you can help us is that not to forget Czechoslovakia. For six months, this country was led by the people who were doing their best to prove, probably for the first time in the history of mankind, that socialism and democracy can exist side by side. The destination of these The people's resistance was stiffened by the underground press and radio. Radio Free Prague. Daily newspapers appeared on the streets of Prague again this morning, still in their emergency typographical getup, since the editors and printers have not yet been able to resume work under normal conditions. The newspapers are distributed to the public free of charge. Rude Bravo, the newspaper voice, of the Czechoslovak Communist Party Central Committee came out with this banner headline, Socialism with a Humane Content Remains Our Goal. This demonstration of national will had one supreme triumph. President Svoboda flew to Moscow and returned with the arrested Czechoslovak leaders. Under other circumstances, they were as good as dead. But Russia was to get by stealth what she had not been able to get by robbery normalization of the country began. I would like to assure you in my own name and that of my fellow radio workers that we will never knowingly tell you anything we don't believe ourselves. On the other hand, please realize and understand that we will not wish to cause more difficulties in our own government. The freedoms so intensely experienced during the summer were gradually eroded. But the Czechs and Slovaks did not capitulate, buoyed up perhaps by the spirit expressed by Julius Tomlin, a lecturer in philosophy at Prague University, during a visit to London. To me is clear one thing. We must find the courage and strength enough to start again our work for building our new way of socialism. I was myself in prison in the 50s and I think that only there where a genuine risk there is uh, 
is their genuine freedom. And uh, now I know that if I decided from fear not to go back, I would bet betray myself. For the British economy, 1968 brought neither new problems nor solutions to old ones. But girls in a Surbiton office thought that they had found an answer. An extra half hour a day without pay. The Back Britain campaign was born. The Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, endorsed it. We all support the Back Britain movement and everyone will welcome the wide response of these past few days. Now its purpose needs to be extended so that everyone, whatever his or her individual circumstances, can do something for Britain. And this means doing something positive, not complaining that the other fellow isn't pulling his weight. It's only too easy for trade unionists to point to the failures of individual employers, or for management to find fault with the trade unions. What we want is back Britain, not backbiting. But the campaign petered out. It was left to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Roy Jenkins, to take sterner measures. Cuts in the rising level of government expenditure, higher taxation. He presented his post-evaluation budget to the House of Commons in March. We must look beyond the next 12 months. For that period, the outlook is fairly bleak. We have to face, on average, a reduction of just a little more than 1% in our standard of living instead of the small but steady increase, which, whether we earned it or not, we've come to expect. What we must do is to get out of the habit of thinking that the next 12 months is much more important than the next five years. If we can't do that, then the outlook for us as a nation is rather dismal. The problem of coloured immigrants was not new in 1968 either, but it assumed a new, more ominous dimension. In Birmingham, in April, a leading conservative, Enoch Powell, warned that if the flood of immigrants from the Commonwealth was not stemmed, the Thames itself might flow with blood. What exactly had he meant? I think when we look not merely to the present, but to the future, to the most sober estimate that can be made of the growth of numbers and the concentration of the immigrant and immigrant-descended population, I was using those words in a full and deliberate sense. According to Powell, he almost alone was giving voice to what the British people felt. I mean the gulf between the overwhelming majority of people throughout the country on the one side and on the other side a tiny minority with almost a monopoly hold upon the channels of communication who seem determined not to know the facts and not to face the realities and who will resort to any device or extremity to blind both themselves and others. But Powell's views were controversial even in his own party. They were repudiated by Quintin Hogg. Within ten days, there was a group of youths entering a christening party of blacks and shouting Powell, Powell, and slashing people's faces. Nor were they shared by the conservative leader Edward Heath, who summarily dismissed Powell from the shadow cabinet. I do not believe that the great majority of the British people share Mr. Powell's way of putting his views in his speech. I dismissed Mr. Powell from the shadow cabinet because I believed that his speech was inflammatory and liable to damage race relations in this country. 
I am determined to do everything I can to prevent racial problems developing into civil strife. I am not prepared to accept the sort of language used by Mr. Powell in dealing with this problem. But Powell's views were echoed by hundreds of London dockers who marched from the East End to Westminster to declare their support. They sang as they went. It was left mainly to the immigrants themselves and to the government to put the immigrants' case. The Prime Minister was one who spoke out. There's a legend says that they also batten on the social services. Even that they come here to batten on the social services. This is untrue. The cost to the social services of the average Commonwealth immigrant in 1966 was about 20% less than the comparable figure for the population as a whole. So was the Home Secretary, James Callaghan. Do you want to have fewer doctors? Do you want to have a poorer public transport service? Do you want the hospitals not to be operating at a present level of efficiency? I must emphasize again, every newcomer to these islands comes here on the basis of the skill that he has got to render. In America, the chill winds of racial conflict reached gale force. The Reverend Martin Luther King had for a decade preached the doctrine of non-violence, but he lived under constant threat to his life, and he knew it. I'm realistic enough to know that uh, I can meet a violent end. I live every day under the threat of death, and uh, I have uh, no illusions about it. There are enough sick people in the world for me to come to a violent end just as other leaders have come to a violent end. And I don't think the important thing really is how long you live, but how well you live. And I'm not concerned about my longevity or the quantity of my life, but the quality of my life. He was busy leading a Negro dustman strike in Memphis, Tennessee, when on the 4th of April, an assassin's bullet struck him down. As he mourned Dr. King, Stokely Carmichael claimed to speak for a new generation of black Americans. I think white America made its biggest mistake when she killed Dr. King last night. Because when she killed Dr. King last night, she killed all reasonable hope. When she killed Dr. King last night, she killed the one man of our race in this country, in the older generation, who the militants and the revolutionaries and the masses of black people would still listen to. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she opened the eyes for every black man in this country. Days and nights of rioting and looting in America's large cities followed. In Washington, federal troops guarded the Capitol. Robert Kennedy put the questions that haunted more and more of America's people. No martyr's cause has ever been stilled by an assassin's bullet. No wrongs have ever been righted by riots and civil disorders. The sniper is only a coward, not a hero. And an uncontrolled or uncontrollable mob is only the voice of madness, not the voice. But the black thread of violence had not yet been broken. President Johnson, himself out of the presidential race, backed Vice President Hubert Humphrey, too late for the main Democratic primaries. For the moment, the race lay between McCarthy and Kennedy. 
Kennedy won the critical primary in California, and though the road was still long, his supporters could now see the White House at the end of it. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's good. Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man. He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. I hope they can get the gun out of his hand. <laughs> Be very careful. Get the gun. Get the gun. Get the gun. Stay away from the gun. Stay away from the gun. His hand is frozen. Get his thumb. Get his thumb. Get his thumb. Take a hold of his thumb and break it if you have to. Get his thumb. Within hours, Robert Kennedy was dead. Perhaps only America's dispossessed knew what America had lost. It was for them that the Negro comedian Dick Gregory spoke. Well, we've lost the whole ideal, man, that went with, with him. Because he had an effect on people. He was able to touch people. His brother was able to have the same effect. But he's the only white man that I know at this point, politically, that could walk into the most militant community and be received with open arms because he was the man, you know, that from the black man on the corner in America to, uh, to, the, to the Negro bourgeois, he was the man that they wanted to see president. His younger brother, Senator Edward Kennedy, spoke in his funeral. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us what he wished for others will someday come to pass for all the world. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? With violence disfiguring the face of America, there were calls for violence in Britain, too. Grosvenor Square, 1968, a voice in the crowd. The system is violent and must be destroyed with violence. But even the Great Vietnam War demonstration in October was remarkable for its lack of violence. The weapons used by British students were the demo and sit-in, seldom the strike, never the barricade. They wanted an end to fighting in Vietnam and Biafra, a voice in the government of universities, a revolution in education. Education is something which implies active participation. It's a two-way thing. It's something which is stimulating, which invites you to question, 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 not simply to accept knowledge which is given. But the militant minority made many enemies, enemies for themselves, enemies for all students. Malcolm Muggeridge resigned as rector of Edinburgh. They are supposed to be the spearhead of progress, flattered and paid for by their admiring seniors. An elite who will happily and audaciously carry the torch of progress into the glorious future opening before them. Yet how infinitely sad. How, in a macabre sort of way, funny that the form their insubordination takes should be a demand for pot 
and tools. For the most tense-rate sort of escapism and self-indulgence ever known. From Peter Ustinov, the rector of Dundee, a gentler rebuke. Let us remember that student power, like government power, black power, white power, flower power, any power, is a trap which sets a period for itself by its very existence, as surely as the gift of life is in itself the guarantee of eventual death in a human being. Power is always superseded by other power. Mutual respect is eternal. Is it not then our solemn duty with all our jocularity and horseplay and noise, to ensure that never will there be a risk that the shy thought, shyly expressed by a shy man, will be shouted down or be carried away on a wave of indiscriminate militancy. For that shy thought may well be the most valuable of the lot. On the 10th anniversary of Gaullism in France, the General's Fifth Republic was judged both healthy and stable. But behind the facade from the student ghettos of Nanterre, discontent erupted. It spread to the Sorbonne, and on the 6th of May, police fought 10,000 students in the streets of the Latin Quarter. The Battle of Paris had begun. Within days, communist-led unions struck, taking over factories as students had taken over the universities. The students wanted to change society. The unions wanted more pay. The alliance that might have transformed France never materialized. But the student leader, Danny Cohn-Bendit, hoped at least for a change of government. I, I can now see that it can end in the best way with a new uh, government. Uh, on the other side, I don't think it uh, will end with what we want. It's uh, a new society based on uh, workers' council, you know. This, I know, it's not the time now. But I think that the great important thing now in France that people have learned that they can change something if they go in the street or in the factory. De Gaulle himself was shaken. He announced a referendum and spelled out the alternatives. Francais, Francais. Au mois de juin, vous vous prononcerez par un vote. Au cas où votre réponse serait non, il va de soi que je n'assumerai pas plus longtemps ma fonction. Si par un oui massif, vous m'exprimez votre confiance, j'entreprendrai avec les pouvoirs publics et, je l'espère, le concours de tous ceux qui veulent servir l'intérêt commun 
de faire changer partout où il le faut des structures étroites et périmées et ouvrir plus largement la route au sang nouveau de la France. Support me in a reform of society or I quit. By now, France was in the grip of a national strike. Only when de Gaulle had assured himself of the support of the army did he dissolve Parliament and call an election. He got the mess of yes he wanted, but the economic bill had to be paid somehow. The workers and students bought off with money and reforms, and there was a new mood abroad among the young. Once you've seen it, if you pick up a rock and run at a policeman, or run at five policemen, they all turn around and run away, you realize that you can do whatever you please that there's absolutely nothing that you can't change if you're just determined to do it. And this spirit infected teachers as well. My reaction, you see, was it was my duty as a professor to be with them, to back them. While I, I, I was with them, you see, uh, night after night in the street, chased by the, 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 the police, you see, um, I thought about their problems. I suddenly felt the urgency of their problems. Then, uh, in a crisis like that, you have to do something. You have got to act. And you feel you are no longer a man of thought. You have to be a man of action. But when and how this spirit would be mobilized in political terms remained unanswered. In Britain, efforts to impose an incomes policy encountered mounting opposition from the trade unions. A powerful voice of dissent was that of Hugh Scanlon, newly elected leader of the engineers. We reject the idea that wages are the root cause of Britain's economic ills. Uh, we believe it's lack of investment, that the whole economy is geared to a low investment, low productivity, high cost economy, instead of a high productivity, high investment, high wages policy. The 100th Trade Union Congress in September threw out the government's incomes policy. Many union leaders called for import controls. One was Clive Jenkins. Our economy is like a man with cracked ribs. Whenever he takes a deep breath, he screams with pain. When is the government going to move to cut back the imports that our inefficient merchants are bringing in? But against this kind of situation, an incomes policy is as irrelevant as the blush on a dead man's cheek. Import controls did not come, but other restrictions on imports did. In the aftermath of the international monetary crisis in November, that imperiled the tottering French franc and once again endangered the pound. The Labour government had looked as if it was regaining some of its lost popularity. But the November crisis sent it to rock bottom again as the Chancellor piled on fresh taxes. It isn't that we've been doing badly. Right through from the month after the budget, our trade position, in spite of ups and downs, has been improving steadily. But it has just not been happening fast enough. First, spending has been too high at home. And if we buy too much at home, we don't export all that we could. Also, we import too much. Our exports have done very well, but their success has been offset by our imports not coming down. The Chancellor was followed on the air by Ian MacLeod, the opposition spokesman on economic affairs. We're convinced that this government has lost its way and now can think of no remedy except that of clobbering the people with extra taxation 
and more deflation. Can I remind you of what's happened this year? In March, the biggest budget ever, 923 million pounds of extra taxation. And now another 250 million, making a total of nearly 1,200 million pounds in a full year. For the last four years, this government has been borrowing money from other countries at a fantastic rate. Or if you'd like a graphic way of expressing the enormity of the new socialist debts. One could say that a pound has been borrowed for just about every man, woman and child living in every country on the face of the earth. For more than five years, the Catholic Church had been debating birth control. Finally, on July the 25th, Pope Paul VI spoke and banned all methods of artificial birth control unconditionally. Our labor was accompanied by hope. Hope that this document will be accepted for its truth. Hope, above all, that Christian married couples will understand that its teaching is but the manifestation of their true law, an imitation of the love of Christ for the Church. Catholics in Britain were bitterly disappointed. Lady Antonia Fraser put into words what thousands of Catholic wives must have felt. I read the encyclical in vain to find any reference to the difficulties women are going to find over this. If you read it, uh, there's only a reference to the difficulties of men. And quite frankly, I think the Holy Father could have spared a paragraph in this long encyclical for the, uh, to sustain the people who, um, shall we say, are going to be left holding the baby. Norman St. John Stevens, a Conservative MP and prominent Catholic layman, was more trenchant. I feel, and this is my considered judgment upon it, that it is extreme, that it is partial, at the same time it is inadequate, and by the violence of its language it will create more problems than it solves. But some welcomed the Pope's pronouncement as an overdue clarification of a disputed subject according to the apostolic delegate in Britain, Archbishop Cardinale. I only wish I could show you the numbers of letters which I have received in support of the Holy Father's decision, people who are writing to me saying, what a relief, at last our Holy Father has told us exactly where we stand. The encyclical created a crisis of authority between priests and people and priests and bishops. Some priests were suspended from hearing confession. A few were suspended altogether, like Father Paul Weir of Carshalton in Surrey. I'm sure that there are many priests who share my basic convictions on this point. Um, I'm certain that there are innumerable laity who feel very passionately about it. Uh, and I think that this voice is going to be heard, that there will be an increasing volume of, of protest. Um, against the teaching of the encyclical and that possibly the time may come when the witness uh, is so extensive that a bishop no longer feels obliged to suspend a man who speaks his mind openly and in conscience on this matter. At the beginning of 1968, a South African dentist, Dr. Philip Bleiberg, was on the verge of death through progressive heart failure. On the 2nd of January, Dr. Christian Barnard performed a heart transplant on him. Almost 90 other heart transplants took place in 1968. Over half the heart recipients survived the year, but controversy continued. 
The failure of Britain's first heart transplant in May renewed the argument. But these operations would go on, according to Donald Ross, a member of the British transplant team. We're uh, satisfied that we are morally right. We're as morally right as any other surgeon is in doing an operation for a desperately uh, severe condition. But if the patient has no other uh, future short of this transplant operation, we think we are morally justified in the present state of our knowledge in doing it. In Nigeria, the war between the federal government and the breakaway region of Biafra passed a series of gloomy milestones. The only certainty was the growing death toll among starving civilians. Many were shocked by Britain's insistence on sending arms to the federal authorities. Cardinal Heenan. There are more people massacred in Biafra during the last ten months than people were killed during the whole of the last three years in Vietnam. I think that it's absolutely, unbelievably bad for this country to be supplying arms to one part of a civil war. The government knows well that it, the Nigerian government sounds a very stable sort of thing. But these people in power shot their way into power. Everybody knows this. What could be done for the starving? Food was flown into Biafra only by night. Chief Anthony Anaharo, Federal Nigerian Information Commissioner, wouldn't trust the Igbos to use even food responsibly. Who was going to be responsible for distribution? I mean, will these supplies go to the troops? Or will they go to feed their children and mothers? Up to now, no statement has been made by anybody at all as to how distribution will be organized and who is to ensure that it gets to people behind the fronts. I mean, the, the troops, from what I hear, rebel troops are fighting fit. Clearly, they can't be starving. If there's food for them, how's it? There's no food for starving children, starving mothers. Somebody's obviously diverting supplies to the troops. While the Biafran leader, Colonel Ajuku, underlined the total implacability of the Biafrans. We came into this war, rather this war was forced into, onto us by the fact that Nigeria attacked us. Should, in fact, the enemy make a major thrust and push us back in one of the crucial fronts, I think, and I'm quite certain of this, about half a million young men will take to the bushes. And when they do, I think Europe has heard of this type of story. It will be another Vietnam completely. Military observers from outside saw no evidence of the genocide of Igbos which their leaders claimed to be inevitable. But one man in particular, Colonel Benjamin Adekunle, the Black Scorpion, embodied the ruthlessness which seemed to be overtaking both sides. I will march straight into Biafra. Let them bring everything they have got into it. This is just a green light and we are going to march into Biafra. Are you telling me that you are going to march into Biafra even though you have had no orders from Lagos? I will march into Biafra. I will march in. Beyond the outbursts of soldiers and politicians, the cruel human fact was that scores of thousands faced starvation. Nicholas Stacy of Oxfam foretold tragedy. In such a terrible situation, it is the aged, the women and children, especially the children who suffer most. And the situation is now desperate. Today, over a million people are being fed through supplies sent by world organizations. This is a race against time. 
Without massive support, the whole operation will collapse. Thousands of lives hang by a thread. By midsummer of 1968, the gap between Britain and Rhodesia seemed greater than ever. Sanctions had been tightened. There was talk of apartheid. Suddenly, the ruling Rhodesian front split. Several extreme right-wingers resigned. The Prime Minister of Rhodesia, Ian Smith, was glad to see them go. As you know, some people have left the party. And I can tell you that every time I have been given the name of one of these people who have departed, I have heaved a sigh of relief. If this was intended as a signal to London, it was certainly taken as one. Mr. Wilson announced another meeting at Gibraltar. We were always ready to have talks if we felt there was a possibility of getting an agreement that was in accordance with the six principles that we have laid down consistently throughout the Rhodesian problem. And we were uh, also, of course, worried for a long time as to whether Mr. Smith could deliver. He couldn't deliver after Tiger. Well, he's shown some guts in getting rid of some of his racialist extremists. And I felt that while there's no assurance we can get an agreement, that it would be right at any rate to have a go. The gap between the two sides narrowed largely as a result of British concessions, but it could not be closed. Mr. Wilson insisted on a double guarantee against alterations to the Constitution which would block African advance. To Ian Smith, this was unacceptable. I do not believe that there can be any doubt in anybody's mind. What they are trying to do to reduce is to accede to our independence with one hand, while at the same time trying to take it away with the other. While there are other undesirable points amongst the British proposals which can be argued, I believe that this one which I have referred to is so fundamental and so completely repugnant that unless it is removed, we will never manage an agreement with the British government. George Thompson, the British minister, flew to Salisbury yet again to see if the Smith government had changed its mind. It hadn't, and neither had Britain. I made it absolutely clear that uh, we've put our proposals on the table, Mr Smith hasn't, and our proposals will remain on the table, but it will now require a major move on Mr Smith's part to get the whole thing going again. Meantime, I warned Mr Smith very clearly that things couldn't stand still and internationally, there would be a reaction that I believe will lead to the intensification of sanctions. In 1968, sport and politics clashed more viciously than ever. There were black power demonstrations at the Olympics. The MCC tour of South Africa was called off because of the selection of Basil D'Oliveira, a Cape Collard living in Britain. According to the South African Prime Minister, Mr. Forster, his selection was the result of political pressures. The team has constituted... Now, is not the team of the MCC. It is the team of the anti-apartheid movement. It is the team of political opponents of South Africa. But the Reverend David Shepherd, a former England captain and long-standing opponent of apartheid, thought that it was Mr. Forster who had introduced the politics. Mr. Forster has used it as, a, as a, a politician's trick, I think, to say this was why he was going to refuse. I myself believe he would always have refused. Um, I think they might have accepted a West Indian, um, other non-white people, but a South African Cape Coloured, who ought, remember, to have been playing for South Africa. He ought not have been playing for England at all. He ought to have been playing for South Africa. 
And to exactly. have seen a, a South African Cape Cod making good and, and scoring against the white men, this was, I believe, too near the bone. From the one man who wasn't playing politics in any way, Basil D'Olivera himself, plain regret. Well, I think it's a tragedy for cricket that this has happened. Um, probably didn't want it this way, but the game itself is going to suffer insofar that probably two of the greatest cricketing countries of the world will not be playing in a series. This is the great tragedy that's come out of all of this, and this is the way I feel about it. Change to come, perhaps, in the relations between England and the other parts of the United Kingdom. Incidents of sabotage in Wales, as yet on a small scale, caused concern about the forthcoming installation of Prince Charles as Prince of Wales. Julian Evans of the Free Wales Army. I don't think there's any personal animosity against the prince himself as a human being, but wh where he comes as a symbol of the subjugation of the Welsh nation, then this uh, type of thing will occur. And he's being used as a pawn in the game. The rusty chains of England have bound our country too long, and now we've set the country on the path to freedom. George Thomas, the Welsh secretary, thought otherwise. God bless my soul. I move freely in Wales. I haven't met with the idea of a foreign prince. That's the equivalent to calling the queen a foreign queen. And when the queen comes to Wales, every village, every town, every valley gives her a tumultuous welcome. And they'll give the same to her son. Tension in the autumn in Northern Ireland a new campaign for full civil rights for the Catholic community. The centre of the campaign was Derry, its leader, John Hume. The real complaint is minority rule in this city and the feeling of the majority of its citizens that they are regarded as not fit to rule. Uh, this is done uh, by, by control of housing allocation because the mayor traditionally has been the only person to allocate houses. Been, this, this power has been held in his hands. He has allocated them on a segregated basis. He has segregated uh, one religion from another, Catholic from Protestant, and in this way have turned a majority uh, into a minority, because uh, two-thirds of this city are anti-unionist, yet the Unionist Party rule. Violence flared in Derry and in Armagh. The Northern Ireland government was conciliatory, but one member of the cabinet emerged as the voice of extreme Protestantism, William Craig. Throughout the whole world, where you have a Roman Catholic majority, you have a lower standard of democracy. In November, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Captain Terence O'Neill, addressed a divided province. What kind of Ulster do you want? A happy and respected province in good standing with the rest of the United Kingdom or a place continually torn apart by riots and demonstrations and regarded by the rest of Britain as a political outcast? As always in a democracy, the choice is yours. If it is your decision that we should live up to the words, Ulster is British, then... My services will be at your disposal to do what I can. But if you should want a separate, inward-looking, selfish and divided Ulster, then you must seek for others to lead you along that road.
for I cannot and will not do it. For a moment, Captain O'Neill's policies of moderation seemed in danger, but the moment passed. The Unionist Party gave him a massive vote of confidence. Craig was sacked. In America, the presidential election campaign proceeded without Robert Kennedy. Inside the Democratic Convention at Chicago, there was tumult. Outside, in the streets of Chicago, there was riot as Mayor Daley's police assaulted Vietnam demonstrators. Here they come. They're charging into it. They're just swinging into this crowd. They're pushing the crowd. It's a stampede. There goes a big blast of tear gas. I can't see. He got me in the face. Oh, man. It looked all but certain that the Democratic nomination would go to Vice President Humphrey. It did on the first ballot. I choose not simply to run for president. I seek to lead a great nation. And either we achieve true justice in our land, or we shall doom ourselves to a terrible exhaustion of body and spirit. But the campaign brought a new, more strident voice to America. George Wallace, former governor of Alabama, third-party candidate for the presidency. I can tell you that if I were the president of the United States, you could walk on the streets in any section of Washington, D.C. at any time, and I would make that possible if I had to bring 30,000 troops to Washington and put one every 30 feet with a two-foot bayonet on the end of a rifle. We're going to make it safe for all the citizens of Washington, D.C., because it's a sad commentary that in the nation's capital, you are fearful of walking out of this uh, uh, hotel. It was a deeply divided America that went to the polls on the 5th of November. It elected, by one of the narrowest margins in the century, the Republican candidate Richard Nixon, a man not loved by many, perhaps, but a figure of reassurance and calm. I saw many signs in this campaign. Some of them were not friendly. Some were very friendly. Uh, but the one that touched me the most was one that I saw in Desher, Ohio, at the end of a long day of whistle-stopping. A little town, I suppose five times the population was there in the dusk. It was almost impossible to see, but a teenager held up a sign, bring us together. And that will be the great objective of this administration at the outset, to bring the American people together. The decisions that Richard Nixon would take in the years to come would affect not only that teenager in Ohio, but the whole world. The World in 1968 was presented by Anthony King and John Tutor and produced by Mike Cheney and Alan Thompson. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.